0: Hello, welcome back to Analyzing Mormonism. This is episode two, and we are going to go through the Gospel Topics essays. And the first one I chose just out of random was the Book of Mormon translation. Boop, boop. <laughs> so, what I recorded myself reading this essay, and I'm hoping to put that either before or after this episode, just for people who want to listen to it. Um, and I want to, we're going to play my recording um, and then go through and give commentary about it. So I am going to push play,
1: if that's like, okay with you guys.
2: Like on those Blu-ray movies where you get to hear the director's commentary. Oh yeah,
1: this is the director's it's cut. the only it's time I've, I've ever done that. I think I only ever did that. The um, critics cut? Things. In um, What a Girl Wants with Amanda Bynes. I listened to Amanda Bynes commentating.
0: You didn't do that with Harry Potter or, or Lord of the Rings? I wish I'd done it with either of those two. I feel like I did it with I think that we should do
2: the one with the mummy, because it's um, Brendan Fraser Aww. talking about it, and really? he's just like so lovable. Anyway, <laughs> continuing on. Okay. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to push play.
0: Today is March 28th, 2022, and I'm going to read from the Gospel Topics Essays, the section Book of Mormon Translation. You do the thing. Joseph Smith said that the Book of Mormon was the most correct, of any, book on earth and the keystone of our religion, and a man would get nearer to God by abiding by its precepts than by any other book. I should know I read it. The Book of Mormon <laughs> came into the world through a series of miraculous events. So Much can be known about the coming forth of the English text of the Book of Mormon, through a careful study of statements made by Joseph Smith, his scribes, and others closely associated with the translation of the Book of Mormon. Um, Quick note, in my time working as a Mound Rover, we had a website and I did a post about um, the Book of Mormon and the changes that have made to it, and I took eight different editions of the Book of Mormon that had been published on the Joseph Smith papers. Um, I own two of them. I had the 2013 um, and the one just before or after that one, I can't remember. Uh, what is it? The 1981? I can't remember. Um, but I had two, two of the most current ones, and then the church has like four or five different ones. Um, anyway, so I was comparing them and seeing where the changes were. And in, in my own research, there had been 3,000 changes to the text of the Book of Mormon. This is not, this is not talking about punctuation, question marks, or anything like that. This is just to the words and to the text itself. Um, so I just think it's funny when, or it's interesting that they, Joseph Smith called it the most correct of
1: any book on earth because.
2: It certainly wasn't correct when he wrote it because it's right. been corrected. Right.
1: the They talk. As far as I know, the manuscript it, script itself was not perfect. It was very messy and needed a lot of editing.
0: Yes. Yes. And, the, and they kind of talk about it here in the essay. So maybe maybe we'll keep going. I just think it's. I just think that's worth pointing out. Um, I think I don't know the count specifically, but I think the count is closer to five thousand changes. And the church will say that the church says, yes, it's been changed and they're not major. Um, what I would be more interested in, and I don't think the church has published this, but what those changes specifically are. Like I know they have a person called in the historian's office, I think, um, who, who keeps a running counter, keeps a really good uh, um, accounting of these changes. I just would be interested to, for them to publish it to um, the members of the church, but we'll keep going with the, with the essay. By the gift and power of God, Joseph Smith reported that on the evening of September 21st, 1823, while he prayed in the upper room of his parents' small log home in Palmyra, New York, an angel who called himself Moroni appeared and told Joseph that God had a work for you to do. He informed Joseph that there was a book deposited, written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent, and the source from whence they sprang. The book could be found in a hill not far from the Smith family farm. This was no ordinary history, for it contained the fullness of the everlasting gospel, as delivered by the Savior.
2: Any comments on that section? I just think it's really convenient that the book could be found in a hill not far from the Smith family farm. Like, was Joseph chosen because he was the one, or was it just, like, convenient because he was just, like, so close to the plates?
0: Um. So, so um, I took a natural disasters class at BYU-Idaho, and they, they talked about this, how um, Joseph lived in Vermont, I think, and then because of... Oh, I can't... I wish I'd done more research before doing this, but a volcano erupted and it just was so devastating to everything around it that it even hit New York and the crops all failed. And so that was one of the reasons why Joseph and his family had to move. And so it was so like, it was like God pushing him, like get out of here, go to Palmyra because that's where the plates are buried. So it was like a testimony builder that that, that, that had happened. But yeah, um, but also I think it's interesting. I'm just gonna point out because I like this; these little pieces of information. It says the angel called himself Moroni. However, in, if you look at the history of uh, the church, Joseph doesn't always call him Moroni. He sometimes calls him Nephi. And I just think that's really interesting. Okay, so historian Dan Vogel points this out in his research. He, he points out that Joseph uses Nephi and Moroni um, throughout the history of the church. And he, he, he proposes that it's because Joseph wasn't sure which name to use, and he was testing them out because of this idea, um, there's sort of a theme in in the history that Joseph was a necromancer, um, speaking to the dead, raising the dead, yeah. And so because Christ, because Nephi had been, let me see if I get this right, Nephi had been alive before Christ and people were only resurrected after Christ, so that would have been Moroni, right? Um, Which I think is really interesting. Um, Also, um, if you know the story of Mary Whitmer, she also um, claims to have seen the angel Moroni, and she always called him Brother Nephi. So it's not just Joseph. It was other people who
2: were getting the names mixed up, and I just I think like that's interesting. using the names interchangeably.
0: Oh, yeah, very
1: much. That's very much how it feels to me, anyway. There's just, um, conveniently, a lot of Nephis going on in this. Nephi 1, Nephi oh, yes, 2, yes. Nephi, Nephi 3, Nephi 3, Nephi, mm-hmm. Nephi, Nephi. Nephi. Nephi.
0: <laughs> Yes. Um, so also this idea that, that there was gold in in New York, in Palmyra. This was not uh, a new thing. Um, as it goes on to say later that Joseph was a treasure digger. And that was a comment, just lots of people thought that there was gold buried here. Um, and even someone said, one of the other fellow treasure diggers, I think his name was Samuel Lawrence, um, also claimed that there was treasure buried. and um, So this was just going along with his the magic world view.
1: And, Fat um, of the
0: time. Yes, exactly. Anything else to say on that one?
1: On that. Is is this a grammatical error? God had a work for you to do. Shouldn't um, it be has? It might be. I him To do. God has a work for you to do or that no quotation God had a work for me to do.
2: Oh,
0: they uh, yeah. I am just
2: confused. I'm like, I don't think uh, that's, I'll, I'll have to check that out. That's <laughs> just bothering me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to keep going to the next paragraph. The angel charged Joseph Smith to translate the book from the ancient language in which it was written. The young man, however, had very little formal education and was incapable of writing a book on his own, let alone translating an ancient book written from an unknown language known in the Book of Mormon as Reformed Egyptian. Joseph's wife, Emma, insisted that at the time of translation, Joseph, quote, could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon, unquote. Okay,
1: so Jesse, kept giving me looks. What, what are you thinking? <laughs> Okay, okay. So the ancient language part. This has been debunkled by many a historian. There's no such thing as reformed Egyptian. That's not a real language. So I was like, like staring at you. And then the very little formal education, the um, couldn't write write or dictate a coherent. Joseph wrote masterful letters to his wife. He wrote beautiful sermons. He absolutely we did. Literally, have so much of. Joseph yeah, in fact, Semen's one right of now. the letters
0: that the church leaders quote from often is called the Happiness Letter, that was um, was written to Nancy Rigdon, which we which we'll definitely talk about later. But he has such beautiful letters, and in fact, the main letter that that I worked from as a Mound Rover was one that he'd written to Emma, declaring that this mound on the on Zion's Camp had this had this um, buried white lamanite named zelf and like it was just such a beautiful letter to her so like um i don't know so that's that's not true joseph just
1: absolutely could write well but and emma has been known to say things that were not true. yes and i'm glad you pointed that out polygamy never happened so so so
0: in this interview that they're pulling this quote from she she denies polygamy and she knows
2: 100 that joseph had so many wives. So like she she had to agree to them. According in the Doctrine and Covenants, he he dec- like, what do you call it? <laughs> they, <laughs> there's a polygamy declaration. <laughs> yeah, where he's like, you need to agree to this, or you'll be damned to hell. Essentially, that, that is
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so it's interesting that they're pulling out a quote from Emma that um, is very contradictory in nature it in just general.
2: Sucks for Emma. Well, and I just want to point out also it's saying he had um, very little formal education, but like his parents were teachers.
0: Yes, and grandparents. And grandparents. so his dad would teach school um, during the winter, and his mom taught as well, as well as I think the was it the Max or the Smiths? I can't remember, but but one set of grandparents,
1: if not both, were also school teachers. And so. he went up until third grade, which for us now is like finishing high school, right? Yeah, the, I I what I understand is that they
0: began school at the age of three or four. And, I, and he would have been, it would have been after his surgery. Um, so, what, 12 he stopped and started working on the farm? He
1: certainly didn't have the same opportunities as people who were going to, like... Like Harvard. Yeah. Like, um, uh, who's the... Charles Darwin lived at the same oh, time. Yeah. And he lived in a family of, I think he was one of two or maybe an only child. And his parents had a lot of money and could send him to a very good school. Joseph didn't have that education, but he wasn't stupid. Yeah, that is. He wasn't very... an idiot. No. He didn't wear a dunce hat and it wasn't this remarkable, beautiful miracle that he could all of a sudden write and read. Wait, yeah, I also think it's Moses. interesting
0: <laughs> I also think it's interesting that it says he was incapable of writing a book on his own. Like I don't I don't I don't think that's a very good argument. Just because just because nobody's done it or just because very few have done it, I don't know. Well, like I'm a writer,
2: right? Julia. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. So I majored in English, and I have written books. Um, I've been involved in the Nano If any of you have heard of that, where you write, mm-hmm. where you write um, a book in thirty days, and the goal is to write fifty thousand words, and I've done that five times. And it's hard; it's grueling work, but it but it's definitely possible. Yeah. Like I know that the Book of Mormon has a lot more words. And it is more complex. has a lot he, more ideas and
2: religiosity. I, oh. just,
0: I just don't accept that as a good argument, that, right, yeah. that he couldn't do it because of his education. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. Yeah, we'll I definitely happy. agree. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're going to keep going. Joseph received the plates in September 1827, and the following spring in Harmony, Pennsylvania, began translating them in earnest, with Emma and his friend Martin Harris serving as his main scribes. The resulting English transcription known as the Book of Lehi and referred to Joseph Smith as written on 116 pages, was subsequently lost or stolen. As a result, Joseph Smith was rebuked by the Lord and lost the ability to translate for a short time.
2: Any thoughts on that one? I just think it's really convenient um, that he couldn't rewrite or couldn't retranslate those whole 116 pages. Very convenient. The... Occam's
1: Razor argument to me, like the most logical. Wait, explain what that is first. OK, so Occam's Razor, I'm going to Google it so that I can give you guys the appropriate definition. Um, but as far as I know, it's like going to the most logical uh, explanation, explanation first. for it, yes. Occam's, I don't even know how to spell it. <laughs> <laughs> Just say it into your phone Arkham's razor. Arkham's razors
0: okay what I one of the, so the church has this narrative and it's even in the Book of Mormon where Joseph Smith, the hundred and sixteen pages are lost and Joseph says he receives a revelation saying he can't retranslate it because then these people will come and say, no, we have that we've um, it's we're proving different. that it, it's yeah. different than what we have written. We're proving you wrong, this is not from God. Um, where in reality they would have if I'm please correct me. Um, they would have to these people who who supposedly stole the 160 pages. They would have to go and get it copyrighted, and then, or go and change it and then get it copyrighted. I guess I'm like, confused by the, by the uh, the whole idea because it doesn't seem like anyone had those intentions. It doesn't seem like that ever it was copyrighted. I don't know. I guess I wonder I'm confused if, by
1: this. I wonder if Martin's wife didn't perhaps burn them out of anger. That is that
0: is one of the main theories. Is that um, Lucy Harris um, was so upset that her husband had given so much money that either she had burned it or stole it or hid it just to prove that Joseph could could retranslate it. Um, couldn't couldn't retranslate, or couldn't
1: re-translate yes. it. But what, did you So Occam's razor is basically the simplest ex- explanation to something. There's a com- they, they have a complicated way of explaining it. But an example of Occam's razor is you have a headache, Oh no, you might have the black death when really the uh, it's much more likely that you're dehydrated or have a cold. So just going to the most likely scenario we're cutting away all the fat arguments and looking at the bare bones. And the bare bones to me looks like a man who had a, an idea going and lost his physical um, asset had to regroup and that regrouping could also look like being called rebuked by the lord mm-hmm. like and he it's the easiest answer it's in in the mormon propaganda the church will they've published movies that show this scene of joseph this time between him losing the 116 and then when he can retranslate uh when he can translate again or resume translating and it's always he's so like upset and he's depressed the and he's like gardening with his wife for the first time ever because he finally like can't Bullshit around with this, so he <laughs> should cut that whole thing out. Um, <laughs> he's he seems really upset, but then it seems like Emma comes back and perks him up, and is like, "Go ask him again. Like, ask him to give you the information." And I want to know more about that. Does Emma? What got him back into writing?
0: What well, got him back into translating? Yes.
1: Well, let me think if I can remember. Um. So I think the story goes
0: is that the the angel either took did the angel take the plates and kept joseph kept the arm
1: and he s- just sealed the first portion again but i don't know
0: i, I need to i you know what, i need to research that too maybe we can go back and go into the details of like because one of the research that i was i am really interested in is where are the physical plates being moved around to um and maybe we can
1: just do one on that too so i love that Wild goose chase. <laughs> it's like when they're here. In, no, they're here. In feudalism, they like tie yeah. a, tie a, like a piece of gold and diamond jewelry to a pig and send it running, and all of the yeah courtiers yeah. run after it. I'm like, that is how it feels to track down where the book is. It really is. is very complicated. It's a very.
0: It was in um, a tree,
1: and then it was in a barrel, and then it was in a house, and then it was in another tree,
0: and then it was in the hearth, and, and then an
1: angel took it. Okay, so I'm gonna keep going because there's.
0: Joseph began translating again in 1829, and almost all of the present Book of Mormon text was translated during a three-month period between April and June of that year. His chief scribe during these months was Oliver Cowdery, a schoolteacher from Vermont who learned about the Book of Mormon while boarding with Joseph's parents in Palmyra. Called by God in a vision, Cowdery traveled to Harmony to meet Joseph Smith and investigate further. Of his experience as scribe, Cowdery wrote, These were days never to be forgotten to sit under the sound of a voice dictated by the inspiration of heaven, unquote. Okay, so one thing that it doesn't seem to point out heavily, at least yet, um, is the the how quickly Joseph was able to translate. People always brag, oh, he did it in 65 or so working days, and no one's ever done that. Um, but so here, so he gets the plates in 1827, right? He received the plates 1827. He begins translating 1829, so that's seven. 2020 and that's 2 years later. However, Lucy Max Smith, his mother, says that he had been telling stories from the very first time he had seen supposedly seen the Angel Morani. So this is like so if you take a step back, he's had like 6 or so years to come up with these stories and Lucy was even saying, you know, that he would sit down by the fire and tell the family all these stories of of what these people wore and their modes of transportation and things like that. So he he was not he did not just start from an empty brain. He started he definitely had something to go off of.
1: It reminds me of the man who uh, who came up with and established Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard. He was an incredible science fiction author, and in his spare time with his followers, he would tell stories about the ancient universe and point to the sky and tell them about the different regimens of, of aliens under the galactic god Zenu came and invaded under what force, like, things that are gobbledygook, but to a Scientologist, like, that makes sense, just like to anyone else, you're talking about Nephi and Lehi, and you're like, whatever, but you're, I loved those men, those were like my dad and brother, or like my dad and uncle, they were like really important men to me, and the Book of Mormon was like an important book to me. And in the past, I would have loved the idea of listening to Joseph Smith, being at his feet, and listening to him talk directly about Zelf
0: on mm-hmm. the
2: shelf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you have anything to
1: add? Um, no. Oh, was he his cousin? cousin. Uh, sorry. Uh,
0: um, I don't think it points it out here, but yes, I do believe that they were. Were okay. they third cousins?
1: Because it says it's like inspiration, but Oliver's like a school teacher, and maybe he had. I think, a think plug that's why he was with, with his parents because
0: yeah, they think... were also school teachers. I have to research that again, but yeah, I think they were related. Sorry, I cut you I off. I just think
2: Oliver Cowdery is a really interesting character, and um, going forward through the stories, how he like kind of, I don't know. It seems like he kind of forces um, Joseph to. Change things because he cites um, Revelation or whatever. It's Oliver that does that, right? Oliver, which like I was visited by angels. Is that that, isn't that Oliver?
0: Um, yes. He's he's the one who first talks about, I think, about the
2: about the angel getting like the Peter um, James and John. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. That's very interesting, and that's I am very excited to talk about that so, too. So that kind of, I mean, that knowing that, and then. It talks here about how he had a vi- like, what does it say about how he received a um, revelation that he needed to go find, go and investigate further.
1: Yeah.
2: Anyway, oh, called by God in a vision. Yeah, yeah. Kind of adds up that he's might that he's have been like already having visions. I
1: love my cousin, and I want to go talk to him about his new business venture, Book of Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so next part.
0: The manuscript that Joseph Smith dictated to Oliver Cowdery and others is known today as the original manuscript, about 28% of which still survives. This manuscript corroborates Joseph Smith's statement that the manuscript was written within a short time frame and that it was dictated from another language. For example, it includes errors that suggest the scribe heard words incorrectly rather than misread words copied from another manuscript. In addition, some grammatical constructions that are more characteristic of Near Eastern languages than English appear in the original manuscript, suggesting that the base language of the translation was not English.
1: Okay, so just you made a face. What? Oh, I... Uh, so, the 28% survival rate for the original manuscript, like, that's insane and that's just in, in insane what, in to me. In what way? What do you mean? Um, the, okay, 28% of the original so if you like blow that up in the context of the church I'm, I'm like this isn't fair for me to do and it's a terrible comparison but if only 28% of the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon survives and we're literally going off of that plus whatever fluff they've added like it, can we then look at the bigger picture of the church and say how much percentage of the original church have we kept oh that's really interesting and then how much has been changed. Um, There's not really a quantitative way to do that because, you know, it's a living, growing entity. The church itself is sort of an organism. Um, I also was thinking about the, like, the concept of this language being translated from, and, like, if, you know, hundreds of years from now, uh, or thousands even, if they come upon, like, the Eon for Artemis Fowl books, or Star Trek with Klingon language. If they are like, oh my goodness, this language is incredible, they were the Klingons. And then they do a little bit more research and like, oh, they were fictional. Like um, the, this was not translated from a real language. These people did not geographically exist. There's no evidence for them anywhere. Um, There are church leaders who have corroborated that. Fact is that correct that it's not historical that it is not historical. Um, okay, so the
0: more so there has statement. been um, so this what you're saying kind of comes across as anti. However, yes, um, three times I I know for sure at least three times the brethren have been corrected saying this is not historical, um, which is fairly interesting and I I'll, I'll be happy to post those notes. Um, but yeah, I think the church is moving into it being a, a an metaphor. inspiration. Yeah. Well, like and the
1: Jewish, uh, I, the Jewish community rabbis specifically know that Moses is a he's a fictional character.
2: He's like a legend. Rabbis
1: themselves like, oh, he is the Hercules of our mythology, and we love and revere him, but he's not a real man. And I think that we're sort of maybe that's what the church is doing with nephi like we love and revere him we learn a lot from him but he's not a real guy oh
0: maybe maybe they're moving in that direction what what jessica means with moses is that there is literally no evidence that moses exists outside of the biblical text so there's it's just not there
1: none no record of any mass exodus from egypt of a huge number of slaves there was not a ramesses while there was a moses it's not the same the timelines are not, uh, there's no evidence. So.
2: There's no evidentiary support. So one, one thing that I find to be problematic um, with our church versus, for example, the Jewish church, I don't know that much about um, uh, the, the Jews or their religion, um, except for that I know that they argue about the meaning of, you know, whatever text. Uh, they argue. What is? What do they mean when they say this? I and would they say argue debate about it. We yeah, debate, they debate, debate about, about real- it. Sure, sure. So they debate about it, and it's like it's generally accepted that that's what you do. You just talk about it, talk about it, talk about it until like you kind of come to a consensus. But there's not really a a nailed down um, uh, what do you call that like a uh, perfect answer to the problem. They just know that that you know this is something that we aren't going to discuss until the end of time whereas in the LDS church this is the answer and you're not going to disagree with the, yeah. the, the prophet because he is chosen of God and he tells you the way that he leads the way and you sustaining sustain um, your
0: local leaders, you your local leaders. Them.
2: yeah but well, that's a little bit hard to
1: follow when it's true all the time and those councils change
2: yeah. Right. So when it's if, yes. appropriate
1: to be one way under one bishop, if one bishop says, I literally don't have a problem with you doing this X yeah. thing, and then you go to your next bishop and he says, You cannot take the sacrament anymore and you have to stand in a disciplinary council. Um, that doesn't feel like the the same God principle and that's that's really hard. It's the it's not the same ambiguity that we that there is granted in other religions where they're like right. we don't all have the answers they're saying, we have the answers all the time. And it's, and it's
2: the same across the entire world because God is the same always and forever. And but it's, it's up, up to, to the ship.
1: priesthood leader to know that answer.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's very frustrating to feel like, like I said before, I really liked that the answer has, or that the church has all of the clear-cut answers to to the problems because they should know all because they are led by God. And then to bring them um, an answer, a question I remember when I was in high school, maybe I was a little younger than that, um, maybe middle school and I was like, my parents are divorced and I didn't have the opportunity to be sealed to either of them. How is that going to work out? Am I, do I need to choose a parent to be sealed to? Is that, how, how can you ask me a child to choose between my parents who I would want to be sealed to? And I remember asking these kind of questions to my Bishop and he was like, "I, I honestly don't know the answer. And God will figure it out in the next life. Mm. And that's, I didn't, that didn't sit well with me because if there's an answer to, okay, well, um, people died before they could hear the gospel, so we're gonna make a way for them to be baptized, that's wonderful and that's beautiful that everyone can have the opportunity to be saved. But then you're not gonna answer this kind of a question? Yeah,
0: it's hard that we, the church professes to have. A prophet who is the mouthpiece
1: for God, and yet we can't receive new answers for mm-hmm. situations like this. It's just. It's, it'd be incredibly sticky for President Nelson to start giving people advice, like real advice. He's not certified in any capacity to give people. Like, his people are struggling. There are people who are massively or sorry, who are on the really um, I'm like losing my words. Are you talking about
2: the the members? Yes. Like that there's like a high level of depression and um, low income.
1: Yes. Lots and lots of problems and he hasn't ever come none of the prophets have ever looked at the problems that the members have had and headed them directly it doesn't seem. It seems more like let's teach you lessons on gratitude and about renewing your covenants rather than mm-hmm. you're in tithing. so much debt you can't handle it but you, and you'll avoid paying your phone bill but you're paying tithing. Those, it just feels a little bit off balance. Like if, if Why aren't the relevant things being talked about?
0: Um, just to bounce off that a little bit because we're talking about the Book of Mormon it's interesting to me that the problems of the churches so the Book of Mormon is said to be written for our day, specifically for us. Um and I'm pretty sure it says that a few times in the text. There's a seminary song about it. Really? I don't remember <laughs> it. I'll sing it for you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um but so it's interesting that the biggest problems that the church is dealing with now, which I would probably say is LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um and just like you said, financial things, like there's so many different other like depression, I don't know, just Anxiety, other things. The Book of Mormon doesn't um, touch. This it just doesn't Body talk about dysmorphia,
1: that. like the pandemic. The <laughs> pandemic.
2: Yeah. There's
1: no Nothing. no revelation for war. the pandemic. Uh, well yeah, it talks but, about war, but it's like it's I mean, we're not strategists so but what but what it, it talks about
2: when it when we talk about war and famine and pestilence or whatever, it's like, okay, prepare for that to happen because it's going to happen because the second coming is coming. It doesn't, or like, we're not (laughs) training people how to, um, I don't know, I don't know, directly be like, hey, you know, do this thing because a pandemic is coming next month, Mm -hmm. you know? Wait, so
0: before we get too far off topic, um, there is a sentence in here that says, there are, in addition, some grammatical constructions that are more characteristic of Near Eastern languages than English. And in my research, um, so I'm an English major, and I love, I love the English language. I love poetry. I love reading. Um, as a mountain rover, I wrote a, um, an article about um, the Hebraisms inside the text of the Book of Mormon, and one of them that I was super big fan of was they were called chiasms, and it's a parallelism where um, it's sort of like A B C D D C B A. It's just a just a repetition. Um, and I thought that was so interesting because because it is a Hebrew style of writing, and it's all over the Book of Mormon, and it's just so fascinating, and it's just...
1: It's very lovely and poetic. It
0: is. It's just so poetic. But then I realized that Joseph Smith, in his letters, they are also, many of them have um, chiasms in it, and his construction of the Doctrine and Covenants also has chiasms. And the Book of Abraham, which we know, um, which we'll talk about later, is a... These are all contemporary writings. These are all these aren't these aren't ancient texts, but they all have Hebraisms in them, and so that um, kind of hurt me. I guess hurt my um, that this wasn't oh this thing that I thought was evidence of the Book of Mormon really isn't. It's really not mm. special. It's mm. it's just characteristic of Joseph Smith. I, I,
1: yeah, I felt similarly when well. You can, we can cut this out if it's inappropriate, but there's when you, I found out that when you go to the temple and receive your um, new name for your endowment, it is not generated based on your personal relationship with Heavenly Father, like your kind of hope
2: and think. Well, yeah, because I thought it was in like, your eternal name, like your name before you were born, and you would be called forth to the resurrection. But no, like literally my sister and I were... Um, endowed on the same day and so now I know her eternal name because we have it's the same
1: one. It's just it's um, generated based on the day. They pick a name per day. And yeah,
0: so I think a lot of times we have, specifically with that, um, I think the story wind is that this is your name that you had in heaven when it really isn't. It's and I, and I knew that going into the temple. I guess you I guess you didn't, I did but not. what is the purpose
2: if it's not it's special? It's symbolic, because
1: uh, to
0: me it was always symbolic. Cause You're
1: drinking loud, Charlie.
2: <laughs> <I have laughs> Sorry about drinking. that. <laughs> Hopefully you guys can still hear us.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. But while he's still drinking, um, so while I was in the temple, um, I said, what happens if, my grandma was with me, and I said, what happens if you forget? And she's like, oh, you just call and tell them what day you got your, your endowment. And I said, so why would they know that? Is it the same for everyone on that day? And she Got really quiet, and she looked very surprised. And she was like, "Not many people know that." And I was like, "Oh, okay." So to me, it was just always symbolic. But I know that's a big, um, bigger deal for other people because it's it's more special. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so we're gonna keep going with this next part. Unlike most dictated drafts, the original manuscript was considered by Joseph Smith to be, in substance, a final product. To assist in the publication of the book, Oliver Cowdery made a handwritten copy of the original manuscript. This copy is known today as the printer's manuscript. Because Joseph Smith did not call for punctuation such as periods, commas, or question marks, as he dictated, such marks are not in the original manuscript. The typesetter later inserted punctuation marks when he prepared the text for the printer. With the exceptions of punctuation formatting other elements of typesetting, and minor adjustments required to correct copying and scribal errors, the dictation copy became the text of the first printed edition of the book. Um, I don't know if I agree with that. (laughs) Agree with what? So if,
1: did you guys have other thoughts? Well, I I have questions, but I want to hear your thoughts.
0: Okay, so it says, with the exception of punctuation, formatting, and other elements, um, the the dictation copy became the text of the first printed edition of the Book of Mormon. Um, so maybe maybe the first edition I'd agree with, but I don't. Not. That. I don't think I'd agree with the other ones because because there was so much more than those things that were changed. There were whole phrases. There were there were words. There were names that were changed. Benjamin's name was changed to Mosiah. There was whole
2: sentences. I don't know. I
0: just, yeah, but I, but I guess maybe the first edition, maybe that's but was true. Was it
2: changed by Joseph, or was it changed by like Brigham Young? No, it was
0: changed by Joseph. So the oh. well, so oh. well. Okay, that's a good question. Okay, so the first four editions were during Joseph Smith's lifetime, if I remember correctly. Again, I did this research a while ago. So we have the the uh, original manuscript, the printer's manuscript, um, 1831, 1838. Um, actually, I don't remember, but there are, but the first four he did oversee. So he was the one changing them, but the changes after that um, were made by by other people. So
1: either, the printers' manuscript was that edited by the person, the typesetter. No. So the printers. Oh yes, yes, yes. So the original
0: manuscript was he have was to put down. Yes, the the printers' no no. The original manuscript was tucked under one of the buildings and it got water damage. That's why we only have twenty eight percent. The printers' manuscript they gave to. Brandon. Oh wait, then I
1: misunderstood that comment earlier about the twenty-eight percent. Yeah,
0: and that's what I was wondering. But still, I think your comment holds: is that like we only have the original of the original, and we don't. Yeah,
1: I misunderstood that. So this document also did not have punctuation.
0: Yeah, neither the printers or the original. Or no, no. Yeah, original and printers. Neither
1: Joseph's nor Oliver's copies had. Yeah.
0: So, um, so the person, I think it was Grandin. Um, the printer guy, he added an all poor these guy.
1: They, it's like they skipped the editing process and went straight to print, and he's yeah, like they, having they really to did, be yeah. their editor while he prints. Like, yeah, guess I'm gonna have to read through another page, add yeah. all the periods. Oh, and find this really
2: interesting because in seminary and BYU Idaho, when we studied the scriptures, they often would would point out how sentences were set up, where like dashes were, where the sentence ended. Like, because it was important. Like, like, it, would, like oh, it was significant. Like, it was significant because it would draw you know attention. I've never
0: thought about that. Mm. Yeah,
2: because it draws attention to whatever point they're trying to make when it, was, teacher, it was seminary like, teacher. Yeah, like, and then it's just like it's, uh, somebody editing the the book had to add in stuff you know that's i've never thought about like the way that they like i remember whole lessons talking about where they separated verses and that like didn't even happen until
0: yeah so i have a copy of the 1830 edition of the book of mormon and it it just looks like a novel there's just paragraphs and there's no verses it's just big blocks of text so yeah so even that was very different and i don't think that changed till late till much later yeah I don't know, it's just all very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so we're going to keep going. ...instruments. Many accounts in the Bible show that God transmitted revelations to his prophets in a variety of ways. Elijah learned that God spoke not to him through the wind or fire or earthquake, but through a still, small voice. Paul and other early apostles sometimes communicated with angels, and on occasion with the Lord Jesus Christ. At other times, revelation came in the form of dreams or visions, such as the revelation to Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentiles or through sacred objects like the Urim and Thummim.
1: Okay, what were your thoughts? Just collapsed. I <laughs> laughed because um I'm Elijah so... learned that the God, that God spoke to him not through wind or fire or earthquake, but through a still small voice. How many prophets have been spoken to through wind or fire or earthquake? That's <laughs> very true. And like yeah. he'll he'll threaten pestilence and famine and all that, but like the prophet doesn't just get, but like Moses got the tablets. Well, even in
0: yeah, and in Third Nephi, there was a. speech through huge. a burning
1: bush, and Moses. <laughs> so <he's not> like, <laughs> sorry, and so the this Nephi. is a
0: this is an argument of ignorance, I guess. They're hoping yeah. that, I can't remember what that's called, but uh, yeah, that's really true. God, God does speak through wind. Through. He does speak through fire. He does speak through earth. He
1: literally does. He like literally does those <laughs> things throughout <laughs> the.
0: That's so I was, my
1: first comment was, when does he ever do that? But I'm, like, I'm amending that. I, uh, Elijah was maybe spoken to through the still, wait, Elijah literally has God throw a pillar of fire down to his.
0: Oh, yeah, because of the. The, the
1: <laughs> contest between him yeah. and the priest. So that's not even consistent with that That's <laughs> not even because Whoever wrote this needs, I need to you speak with their to manager. study the Bible a little bit more. <laughs> my name is Karen. Me. I need to speak with your manager. <laughs> um, what else? Um. Uh, oh, the sacred objects like the Urim and Thummim. So, a lot of members don't even know about the Urim and Thummim, or know the words and will accept that they are words and then leave them alone. I was a teenager when I found out that they looked the way that they did, and then like, I like was glasses? even... Yes, and I was even older when I learned that he didn't even freaking use them. <laughs> so, he has glasses, and then he doesn't use them <laughs>
0: Um, so the yermenthemum, just while she's on the topic, so the ermenthemumum, they were two clear stones set in the rim of a bow. So it was a, one of them describes as a figure eight. And um someone else says, and i and I feel bad not knowing exactly, can't remember who exactly said these, but one of the one of the witnesses said that it was um, way too big for someone's face. It's just just
1: way huge glasses. It was literally handmade out of a chicken layer. It would fit <laughs> on anyone's face. Uh, <laughs> I'm the, so th- sorry. One of the theories um, mm-hmm. that I think might even be a
0: Heartland theory. I know that da- our data uh, has said it, where. Um, some of the Book of Mormon people, specifically the um, Jaredites, might have been very large, almost giant people. And so these would, have been, these would have been glasses that actually fit onto their
1: face. That's the theory. That's the theory. That's um, adorable. And I'm also sorry. another
0: theory could be because it sets into the breastplate, um, then it's farther away from your face. So in order to have it work right, it, they're bigger. More so like a magnifying things. glass. Yeah, more like a magnifying glass, guess, so. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: Any other comments on that one? I'm sorry um, for the I things. thought the Urim and Thummim was like I don't know, like just something small you hold in your hands like to translate and it wasn't I don't know. Anyway, um
0: wait, if, another thing and I'm just thinking about this. So if these are glasses, if the Urim and Thummim, meaning the Urim and Thummim, not the seer stones, if they're that big, the the witnesses say that he put the seer stone and sometimes the Urim and Thummim into the hat. How is that going to fit in his hat? Just like and just, like, shove it at So, like, it. fold it mind. all up? Um, oh, one, wait,
1: don't they fold um, up together? One of the witnesses
0: said that they did fold, and they had, like, a triangle. It might have even been Lucy, where they kind of look like the Star of David when you fold it.
1: Um, I've so, seen depictions, so literal maybe, models of it.
0: Yeah, I think our uncle had, made, yeah, made my, a, a... Made that. Although a Although, with two, two stone, stones overlaying each other, I'm not sure how you'd be able to... I don't know what that is. Unless even the
1: stones like. are smooth.
0: Yeah, they were smooth and clear. But wait, also, wait. Joseph's... They were smooth like glass,
2: right? Yeah, yeah. I have a question though. Who first mentioned the? Oh, I love that you asked that question. Okay, so Joseph Smith.
0: (laughs) So Joseph was um, had known that the plates were there, and he looked into his his seer stone and said, "This is where they are." And uh, I think it was Samuel Lawrence where he says, "Do you see anything else with the plates?" And Joseph says, "No, I don't see anything." And he says, "Look again, because I see a large pair of glasses." And Joseph's like, "What? No!" And so he looks again. And he's like, yeah, there's a large pair of glasses. And so from then on, he, you know, I guess from Occam's razor, to me, this just feels like these treasure diggers, this boy was just kind of throwing something out there to add in with the, with the plates. And Joseph sort of had to live with it forever. Um, but the more faithful view is that Samuel Lawrence was able to look through his seer stone and see that there was a year month with, with it. In which Joseph was able to retrieve out of and use that to translate the Book of Mormon. So. But
2: how interesting, they use seer stones to get the year of
0: Okay, so keep going? Mm-hmm. All right. Joseph Smith stands out among God's prophets because he was called to render into his own language an entire volume of scripture, amounting to more than 500 printed pages, containing doctrine that, that would deepen and expand the theological understanding of millions of people. For this monumental task, God prepared additional practical help in the form of physical instruments.
1: What about the guy in the Bible who finds the scriptural text under the the temple? They're, like, renovating the temple, and they find the text, and he, like, rents his clothes and cries, because he's like, we haven't even had the scriptures. And he's like, publish this.
0: That's in the Bible. Give one to everyone. Wait, what do you mean? What There's a story
1: of the it's like I can't remember his name. I'm going to look it up. So you're saying that it has happened. It before. has happened. There have there have been um there are people in the scriptures who have translated also Joseph Smith hands around group He was called to render in his own language. Okay, what about Martin Luther? He transcribed the Bible from Latin to
2: oh, German. Oh yeah. That's very Did true. God
1: not call Martin Luther to Get the Bible into but English, but
0: also, also other people starting religions at this time also wrote books too. So I, I'm even Strang. I think, did he write? I, I feel James like he wrote. String. Yeah, I feel like he I wrote so,
2: He's not special.
0: <laughs> so the church is setting it up like he is very unique. When in reality, this probably isn't as unique as the church is trying to set it up. I'm going to keep going with the next paragraph while you're looking. oh, it oh up. shoot.
1: Sorry.
0: Okay, so next part. Joseph Smith and his scribes Ah. wrote of two instruments used in translating the Book of Mormon. According to witnesses of the translation, when Joseph looked into the instruments, the words of scripture appeared in English. One instrument called in the Book of Mormon the interpreters is better known to Latter-day Saints today as the Urim and Thummim. Joseph found the interpreters buried in the hill with the plates. Those who saw the interpreters described them as a clear pair of stones bound together with a metal rim. The Book of Mormon referred to this instrument together with its breastplate as a device kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord, and handed down from generation to generation for the purpose of interpreting languages. Okay, so we talked about how it looks. Um, One thing I wanted to point out is in my own research on the 8 editions that I was comparing, um, it actually doesn't call the Yerim and What what is the word it used, Um, interpreters, it calls them directors which I thought was
1: really interesting. That's more like the liahona word. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so I thought that was interesting.
0: Directors was changed later to interpreters. So
1: oh, I was incorrect about the King Josiah. He found the scriptures, but did not. they didn't need to be translated. Oh, okay. But Martin Luther did it. Other people did it. Okay, <laughs> okay. so keep going.
0: instrument, which Joseph Smith discovered in the ground years before he retrieved the gold plates, was a small oval stone, or seer stone, As a young man during the 1820s, Joseph Smith, like others in his day, used a seer stone to look for lost objects and buried treasure. As Joseph grew to understand his prophetic calling, he learned that he could use this stone for the higher purpose of translating scripture. Um, I think there is so much in this paragraph that is not being said. Um, Did you guys have other thoughts before I jump in?
1: This reminds me of my favorite children's book, I Lost My Bear. Um, Joseph uses the seer stone to find things, and in this book, I love this little girl uses a stuffed animal to find her lost things. She throws the stuffed animal into the room. She throws it, and it keeps finding her stuff. And he he does the same thing. He, like, so yeah. It. So
0: um, um, I think it's interesting that they point out only one of Joseph Smith's seer stones. I think he had at least five. Um, in the he church. had a favorite, though. He did have a favorite. Yes. Um, and it says that he, like others, so it's saying that he's not unique. Um, he did, he was a treasure digger. Um, so Joseph Smith, um, by the historian D. Michael Quinn and Dan Vogel, they both say that Joseph Smith went on 18 different treasure digs, and he was even put on trial um, and was found guilty of of doing this, of being uh, this did, kind de- of fraud.
1: Yeah. He yes, because he was he was taking people's livelihoods it wasn't just a an innocent little day trip thing it was weeks of excavation on a person's these were huge land huge
0: holes and of these 18 treasure digs um joseph found nothing he his which is really interesting to me because in the trial itself these these men are so convinced that joseph was real that he was genuine they found a feather that he had said would be there they found the corner of a of a treasure chest they but nothing joseph never found anything
1: and which i think is just they're just convinced of him and it just reminds me yeah. of a very classic follower syndrome just like you when you when you are a believer anything is evidence towards the truth
0: yeah Apparently, for convenience, Joseph often translated with a single seer stone, rather than the two stones bound together to form the interpreters. These two instruments, the interpreters and the seer stone, were apparently interchangeable and worked in much the same way, such that, in course of time, Joseph Smith and his associates often used the term Urim and Thummim to refer to the single stone, as well as the interpreters. In ancient times, Israelite priests used the Urim and Thummim to assist in receiving divine communications, although commentators differ on the nature of the instrument. Several ancient sources state that the instrument involved stones that lit up or were divinely illuminated. Latter-day Saints later understood the term Urim and Thummim to refer exclusively to the interpreters. Joseph Smith and others, however, seem to have understood the term more as a descriptive category of instruments for obtaining divine revelations and less on the name of a specific instrument. I mean, I feel like that one's pretty straightforward. Do you guys have any thoughts on that one?
1: Um, is that true that Israelite priests use Urim and
0: it is in the scriptures. Um, it's in the Bible. I knew that they had plates and yeah, they had I, symbols on them. Yeah, they had. They would wear a chest plate, as far as I understand, and it had lots of different stones on different them. Different
1: stones. I, um, I was aware of that. Yeah, I, I don't
0: I want... It seems very pagan. I don't feel like we learned, we the Latter-day it.
1: Saints later understood the term, this is very funny, to, like, we learned, as a collective group of millions of people, we all know this. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so, so it's really hard when you look back, I think they're pointing this out because it's hard when you look back on the, the historical documents um, to see what they were talking about, um, whether he was using the Urim as in the two stones or the one stone, because a lot of people find it um, problematic that he was using the seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon when he was using the seer stone to con people to find treasure. Um, buried by Captain Kidd, buried by uh, Spanish people, like uh,
1: Indian, uh, indigenous, indigenous peoples. People, yeah,
0: so it's people just find that very problematic. Where this one instrument, he's doing it through through magic and through occultic practices, and he's using the same. Thing to translate this supposedly sacred record. So,
1: And why does it say that the Latter-day Saints understand it as something, but that Joseph Smith and others understand it as something else? Like, Is there because, an important
0: between that distinction? Um, so so back then they used those interchangeably, but now we see that as problematic. So the church is trying to, it seems to me, trying to separate those two um, because one of them is the Thummim is was preserved by God, it was kept there forever. It was passed on from Jared, and it, it got It was to, not the
2: seer stone. Yeah, you know, it mm-hmm. was not the
0: seer stone. So I think the church is trying to separate this mm-hmm. unsacred thing from the sacred thing.
2: Why would you need a stone? Like, what is even the purpose of of keeping the Urim and through thousands of years So if and, he could just use a, a rock? A good, a, and
1: what's the point of preserving the plates if he can just use the seer stone in a hat? Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's
0: another thing that doesn't seem to really point out. So, So there's a lot of accounts where, oh, maybe it does later, um, where Joseph doesn't even have the plates in the house while At he's all. translating, they're, they're in a tree, they're in a, they're outside in a log, they're yeah. in the barn, they're they're not even they're there. Not so in the house. So there's two problems here, and I think even some of the prophets have pointed this out. There's the problem of why did God preserve the Ur and Thummim when He's just going to use a stone that He found during a dig, and why is why are they going through the, so much trouble to to keep and preserve and to make these gold plates when Joseph isn't even going to use them? So that's why they're trying to separate too
2: also like why in my entire 30 years of life did i not know and when i heard about it found it ridiculous that joseph smith used a steer sewn in a hat
1: (laughs) it's not what we were taught we we saw something different in the church produced movies that they showed in the uh temple
2: like, they uh, very the carefully did not show anything like that. But when I talked to my mom about it, she'd heard about it. She'd heard about it years and years ago. I didn't find out until I was after I was married. Yeah. At the level with my husband about it. I didn't find out about it until I was talking to you two about <sighs> the the church. And I was like, no, that didn't happen. That's ridiculous. I loved so like, talking even, to YouTube about <laughs> I, church. I remember even my... my <sighs> sorry. Sorry, just really quick. Even as a person who didn't believe in the church anymore, you I found that heard. to be ridiculous. I okay. was like, I can't. But I also that, can't that, believe that. It. That cannot <laughs> be true because that sounds ridiculous.
0: I, I remember the very first time I heard about it, I was just thinking about this. Um, the church in, in their ensign, they published pictures of it. And I was so shocked and so disturbed. And I remember contacting your husband and I was like what is this what is going on And he was like what's wrong you don't you don't believe that like why are you struggling my husband and I was like he, it's a rock like why he's this like, but doesn't it's make magic. Any sense
1: he like he I think uh, my ex-husband nuanced the rock magic view so well that it kept a lot of us in for a lot more years at least well, me
2: I think that's going to be true of I know my mom for example loves Magic rocks. That's not what she would call them, but um, it works. It could, connects for her. It makes complete sense. Did not make sense for me because I did not believe in
0: well in a, my magic worldview. And my scientific brain says so. So many people back then had seer stones. It was it was very common. This is not unusual. This is not unique to Joseph Smith. But my question now is, why don't people have seer stones now? Why can't the church look into that, put put that in a hat, and and, and see something? Why? What? What's does, that sounds like an insult? Did it run out of batteries? that in like, <laughs> like <laughs> I, I just don't understand.
1: Well,
0: like, why doesn't why it just, did
2: Nelson receive revelation through why, his own stone? Where yeah. his, yeah, yep, he did yep. that on video, right?
0: Yeah, and, um, he to uh, show, yeah, Nelson demonstrated and he put his face in a hat to demonstrate what it was like for Joseph Smith,
2: which is insane to me that, like, the president of the church confirmed that that's what was happening I don't know. It's that's- interesting
0: to me that there are still members of the church that don't believe this like there was a recent interview on Mormon Stories podcast with Rod Meldrum who is the almost like the the like leader the. guy of the heartland theory and he 100% um, refuses to believe that Joseph um, used uh, this year's one but and it's it.
1: the truth.
0: And the church is even seeing it here. So That's really wild Rod yeah. Meldrum huh? he's got some interesting opinions Okay, so we're going to keep going. Some people have balked at this claim of physical instruments used in the divine translation process, but such aids to facilitate the communication of God's power and inspiration are consistent with accounts in scripture. In addition to the Urim and Thummim, the Bible mentions other physical instruments used to access God's power. The rod of Aaron, a brass serpent, holy anointing oils, the Ark of the Covenant, and even dirt from the ground mixed with saliva to heal the eyes of a blind man.
1: And Even dirt from the ground I, I, I thought
0: that part was really interesting. They're they're pulling out these like, these uh, sort of like relics, I guess, of the but Bible. they not The rod of Aaron, the brass serpent. The, the yeah, those things. Yeah, and you're no right.
1: situation did any of those things translate. The Ark of the Covenant can't even be like that. Couldn't even be that's, looked at. That's a that's a box. It's a thing. The rod of
0: Aaron is a stick.
1: The brass, brass serpent, serpent is a pole s- with a snake on it.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's...
1: And dirt is dirt with the And holy anointing
0: oils that we, we're all familiar with those things and, and dirt. It's comparing, it's essentially comparing the Urim and Thumm, the, the whole process. Am I getting that wrong? Comparing it to dirt?
1: <laughs> it's like, this telescope or microscope is like a flag or like a stick or like a rock. <laughs> Like, no, it's not at all like those things. It's a, it's a tool, um, not, and it's not the sa- They're trying to say this is an access to God's power. And I get that, but it's, it doesn't equate in my brain. I
2: think it doesn't equate because, and this is my point of view again with the clean lines of the church. It doesn't equate because I thought that there was a, a clean line from, from what's the, uh, Moroni, to Joseph of scripture. Mm-hmm. like There's just a direct path, but instead there's this very muddled path that is connected by this magical item or holy, I guess, holy physical instrument that we've never even heard of it's or like a, it's, I hadn't. It's like a game of telephone but instead mm. it's a game of
1: seer stone.
0: Would it, no, hang, I have a question. Would it, would it help people's testimonies to know that Joseph... What if um, historically the stone never happened, and he just pulled the Seer- the urman thumb out, and he pulled it off the breastplate, and he started to translate the Book of Mormon like it's the words, Way prettier. It is way prettier, and I think that's would that help though? Because to me in my head, this these rocks still don't. It's not an iPhone, Oakdorf um, It's it's just not. It doesn't have those properties. It can't show me words. It's a rock. So like, yes, it's cleaner. It's prettier. It's but it's still, still. my scientific.
2: The part of me it sounds doesn't like seem the answer in a fairy tale, you know. Like yeah. The, the yeah, the answer yeah. to all your problems when you're in a fairy tale. Anyway, <laughs> okay, we keep going.
0: The mechanics of translation. In the preface to the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith wrote, "I would inform you that I translated the book by the gift and power of God." When pressed for specifics about the process of translation, Joseph repeated on several occasions that it had been done by the gift and power of God. And once added, it was not intended to tell the world all the particulars of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon.
1: Anything on that one? Just, uh, it's just very easy to say the world doesn't need to know. Anything. Yeah, I'm not, yeah. when I mean, you don't you want don't need them need to know. To. Yeah. That's really interesting.
0: Nevertheless, the scribes and others who observed the translation left numerous accounts that give insight into the process. Some accounts indicate that Joseph studied the characters on the plates. Most of the accounts speak of Joseph's use of the Urim and Themim, either interpreters or the seer stone, and many accounts refer to his use of a single stone. According to these accounts, Joseph placed either the interpreters or the seer stone in a hat, pressed his face into the hat to block out extraneous light, and read aloud the English words that appeared on the instrument. The process as described brings to mind a passage from the Book of Mormon that speaks of God preparing a stone which shall shine forth in darkness unto light. Um, Right there, I think it's super interesting that they're using... Um to help you believe the Book of Mormon and we're going to share a passage from the Book of Mormon or to help you believe I don't know does that sound it's it's, cyclical Yeah it's,
2: yeah, it's yeah, just it's cyclical Yeah it's just the prophet said it so you can believe it It's like saying we know God exists because you can read the Bible and like the Bible the Bible's true because it says it's true like yeah, it, exactly. the Book of Mormon yeah that's just Book of Mormon is true because there's a passage in the Book of Mormon that says it's true
0: <laughs> And I just think it's just straight out the church admits he stuck his face in a hat
1: and he translated. Like, words appeared onto a rock, is what they're standing by. Yeah. Words appeared onto a rock in a hat that Joseph Smith put his face on, which he then relayed the words to his scribe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, that's what they're going That's their story, and they're sticking to it. If mm-hmm. I were hearing that story, like, as a.
2: Well, oh, if you'd heard it from the time you were five, you would have accepted it. That's And I have
1: accepted it. Like, I understood that he... Well, you're right. The hat part I did not know mm-hmm. about. But I, the fact... I did accept Joseph Smith's story, but I, do, I can't blame people who have to think twice about this process. Because I do now. Mm-hmm. Even though I wholeheartedly... I went door to door to preach this man's message. Yeah. It's just hard
0: scribes who assisted with the translation unquestionably believed that Joseph translated by divine power. Joseph's wife Emma explained that she frequently wrote day after day at a small table in their house in Harmony, Pennsylvania. She described Joseph sitting with his face buried in his hat with a stone in it and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. According to Emma, the plates often lay on the table without any attempt at concealment, wrapped in a small linen tablecloth. When asked if Joseph had dictated from the Bible or from a manuscript he had prepared earlier, Emma flatly denied those possibilities. He had neither manuscript nor book to read from. Emma told her son, Joseph Smith III, the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. I am satisfied that no man could have dictated the writing of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. For when acting as a scribe, your father would dictate to me hour after hour. And when returning after meals or after interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off, without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him.
1: Any thoughts on that? Emma has lied to us before, (laughs) and so it's really hard to... Okay,
0: yes. Um, One thing that the church seems to be um, unable to deny is that Joseph used the Bible. He had had a copy of the Bible with him, and when Oliver was... Um, writing those um, Isaiah chapters or the chapters that Christ was speaking from he's just pulling from that specific Bible because they had the same errors they had the same layout um, but Emma doesn't Evan doesn't say that they had a Bible in there um, neither no one else says that it was there but it was it's just word for word this edition of the Bible so and,
1: and that is one of the points in the CES letter is that yeah. the translation process involves the same, uh, mess ups what are those Word errors or? errors as his his specific family copy of the bible
0: and which is also interesting to me because so he's using a bible to copy those biblical chapters in the book of mormon but then later when he does his translation of the bible they're now different again so the book of mormon is the most correct book but even the passages that come from the bible needed to be corrected it's just interesting to mm-hmm. me Another scribe, Martin Harris, sat across the table from Joseph Smith and wrote down the words Joseph dictated. Harris later related that as Joseph used the seer stone to translate, sentences appeared. Joseph read those sentences aloud, and after penning the words, Harris would say, written. An associate who interviewed Harris recorded him saying that Joseph possessed a seer stone by which he was unable to translate, as well as from the Urim and Thummim. And for convenience, then, he used the seer stone. So yeah, literal words written on a rock. Very convenient. Yeah.
2: Well, and I just want to point out um, they keep talking about Joseph as if it was like a miracle that he like wrote this book while staring into a hat. Um, first of all, like you said, this could be an exaggeration or false memories or whatever um, that that this supposed thing way of translating was the way it happened the whole time, but also there are very intelligent people with photographic memories that have created like there's um, I want to say autistic people Is that still a, a thing where they like remember a skyline and can draw it from memory. Howell like, Ron Hubbard was a
1: brilliant writer and I think that's why he could pull things from his brain to mm-hmm. just paint a gorgeous science picture for his listeners mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Joseph Smith could sit down for hours this was the same as the one Dave Koresh. He would preach for hours and hours and hours about the Bible and no one stopped him. Like Mm -hmm. charismatic, smart men with a plan Mm -hmm. can sit and talk for hours. Like I was married to one of them. Like this was absolutely possible.
0: So also I want to point out that the Book of Mormon is basically
1: um,
0: the story of the Mount Rovers theory. Um, the or this story that this it was a very popular idea there was a whole bunch of books written about it um where these mound rovers there was a group of of uh indigenous peoples that came in built on these mounds huge civilizations and the white um indigenous peoples were wiped out by a dark-skinned um indigenous people so it it was just it was just it was
2: just really popular and so joseph coming up with a story. So you're saying there was more people at that time that believed this thing and Seer stones were popular. Yeah, I guess I keep thinking of... This idea was popular.
0: Yeah, I guess I keep thinking of um, when Twilight came out, and shortly after that, there was just vampires, romance novels everywhere. And
1: everybody thought, oh my goodness, what if the Hebrews were actually why there are people in the Americas? Yeah, like, what what if they were people from Israel? What if these people here
0: are Hebrew, what if they are in... So that was not unique to Joseph Smith. We'll keep going. The principal scribe, Oliver Cowdery, testified under oath in 1831 that Joseph Smith found with the plates from which he translated his book two transparent stones resembling glass set in silver bows, that by looking through these he was able to read in English the reformed Egyptian characters which were engraved on the plates. In the fall of 1830, Cowdery visited Union Village, Ohio, and spoke about that translation of the Book of Mormon. Soon thereafter, a village resident reported that the translation was accomplished by means of two transparent stones in the form of the spectacles through which the translator looked on the engraving.
1: Who is the village resident?
0: I know. I keep wondering about that. It's interesting that they're pulling out this some random village resident to say something
1: positive. About I've like read lots of, uh, I've read lots of articles from like the New York Times and like. Um, Uh, That's the only one that's coming to me right now. But, like, the other reputable articles, and they don't do stuff like that. You don't just say a passerby remarked. It's like, so-and-so on the scene who's from this place said this comment in this context. Like, there's got to be.
0: And so the footnote says, good Willie Shaker Richard um, McNemer. Three witnesses see David Wimmer interviews the restoration, a restoration witness, so maybe we have to look into that and see. But yeah, it's just interesting that they're just throwing out a, throwing out a name. Oh. Conclusion. Joseph Smith consistently testified that he translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. His scribes shared that testimony. The angel who brought news of an ancient record on metal plates buried in the hillside and the divine instruments prepared especially for Joseph Smith to translate were all part of what Joseph and his scribes viewed as the miracle of translation. When he sat down in 1832 to write his own history for the first time, he began by promising to include an account of his marvelous experience. The translation of the Book of Mormon was truly marvelous. The truth of the Book of Mormon and its divine source can be known today. God invites each of us to read the book, remember the mercies of the Lord, and ponder them in our hearts, and ask God the Eternal Father in the name of Christ if these things are not true. God promises that if you shall ask with a sincere heart, with a real intent, having faith in Christ, He will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost.
1: That's the whole essay. Did you guys have more thoughts? So, did Joseph Smith write about it in his account, in his own personal history? Did he write about the translation process?
0: Um, I don't. I haven't read the whole thing. What I think is interesting is that, um, eighteen thirty-two is when he first writes about Sorry. the first vision, which I just thought was interesting. Um, but he also changes it a lot from from the first time he attempts to write the history um, to the second time, because in Wait. the second time... The pause pause for a second. There.
2: Sorry. 1832 is the first time he writes about it. When did, according to him, did he receive the revelation? Of uh, Which one? That he's talking about, the thing that God the Father.
0: Oh, that's me. Now I'm just inserting that. So he, he claims to have seen God in 1820 he writes about it 12 years later in 1832. But right here, I just think it's interesting because in that same account, in the same history that they're talking about, they're like, oh, he wrote about it when he wrote the history. Um, he also wrote about, that was the first time we heard about him seeing only Christ. Was it no, in
1: him recounting the translation of the Book of Mormon as well?
0: Um, uh, yeah, I haven't, read, I haven't read the whole 1832 account, so. Or 1833, I think it was published in 1833.
1: And then moving of course, at the end, invite the audience to
2: Check it out. Wait. Okay. Worry about it. Wait. I want to re- return to this. So, in 1832, 12 years after having the revelation or the the first vision, he writes down what story?
0: Uh, well, that's that's another essay. Um, but he wrote down the first vision. That was the first time he he or anyone else had written down the first vision.
2: But he in that first vision he claimed to have seen Christ. What changed. changed. Only Christ, only
0: Christ, and it changed later in 1838 to him seeing two figures, and then in 1842... Is that in Topic's essays? That is one of the Topic's essays, so maybe we should tackle that next. Um, but yeah, I just I was just making... It's interesting that they're pointing out the 1832, um, when that's also problematic about the first vision. Um, what, one thing that I feel like is a theme through this whole essay is they're saying, oh, Everyone has been saying this. Joseph consistently testified. Um, Emma consistently testified. They're, they're trying to like make it more valid because people were consistent in their stories. Um, which I don't know. Maybe that's
1: maybe I'm making up that theme. Did you guys? Oh, I felt it. That yeah. just that like m- trying to add credibility almost.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I guess I just don't. But it it's, feels it's, like
1: a again, resume almost. Like, but just, again like look, at, look at their history. <laughs>
2: It is, again cyclical like, encyclical, like uh, Joseph testifying of him his own self you know I don't know and Emma testifying of the person that she was Joseph said frequently that he was a prophet so <laughs> that I, not J- be true. yeah Joseph consistently said that
0: he translated by the gift and power of God like I don't know like that's yeah mm-hmm. cyclical it's a guy really Warren a good Just argument.
2: believes that he does what he does by the power of God as well if I, if I, I do say so myself I translated by the power of God
1: Why? right yeah right. no
2: no one's arguing that he he he's
0: not being consistent about the gift and power, button. But I, I don't like, know. They like it. It's be. just an interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So overall, what were your thoughts on the Book of Mormon translation process, or this essay specifically?
1: The essay leaves a lot out. It feels a lot like the Saints version. Um. Yes. Where it's like, here are the very basic faith-building quote-unquote facts. Yeah. Just the very sugar-glazed, wheat-like shredded wheat version where like there's a whole lot of steak and potatoes that are not being talked about
0: yeah and i noticed that as an active member as well one thing i think is interesting is my recording of this essay is is 10 and a half minutes but we've been talking for over an hour so it's just i guess that shows you know that they are leaving a whole lot out or there's a whole lot more to talk about and and looking at the footnotes there's so many footnotes here um by the end of it there's 34 footnotes which i encourage you to go look at and actually look at the sources they'll they'll only show you the source and i'm guessing they do that in their favor because it doesn't it doesn't give you the whole thing but but go, you would have to go and buy the book
2: <laughs> to read more about it
0: or you'll learn more things that Add to more questions is Mm -hmm. I guess what I was, but it's a hurdle.
2: Yeah, giving you a hurdle. Yeah, that's true. To get to more information that may be disfavorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: What I want to do is when we get to the polygamy is to definitely look into all these sources because, or look into all these footnotes because they'll be important. Because there's a whole lot there that they that I already know they don't say
1: or leave out. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Any other thoughts before we close this episode?
1: Thank you all for your time.
0: Yeah, thank you for listening. Um, if you guys have more things you want to add or if we've gotten anything wrong, uh, I know we weren't um, super read up on some of the sources we spoke on, so if you guys um, have those, um, throw them our way. But, or yeah. if
2: you would like the, the sources, Julia oh, yes, is yes. very well sourced and can provide those. Absolutely. Okay, well, until next time. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> <laughs>